Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, folks. I am just returning from the 50th anniversary conference of the California Association of Licensed Investigators. What an event. A gathering of almost 300 private investigators in downtown Long Beach, California, including Brad Smith, the uh, president of the Texas Association of Licensed Investigators, and Terry Roffler, the vice president of the Florida uh, Association of Licensed Investigators, the big three, we call it, Texas, California, and Florida. For me, the best is getting a chance to get acquainted with Jim Nano, the new co-owner of PI Magazine. As you all know, PI Magazine is one of my sponsors, and I had never met uh, Jim in person, but we were able to spend quite a bit of time together, and uh, it looks like there are many good things on the horizon for PI Magazine, so stay tuned to that. Um, So I have Joe Koenig with me today. I'm very excited about this. He has uh, an unusual specialty that we'll talk about. But good morning, Joe. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Francie. So you're calling from Michigan, is that correct? I am, West Michigan, Grand Rapids area. Okay. And and that's where you were a state police officer um, for a number of years? No, I actually spent my almost my entire state police career in the Detroit area. Oh, okay, okay. But still Michigan. Right. Okay, all right. So um, was that uh, the Detroit Police Department? No, no, Michigan State, state Police. Okay, all right, okay. And then... Um, how many years ago did you launch out on your own and become a private investigator? Well, I retired after 26 years in 1993 from the state police, and then I went with Hartford Financial for about 10 years, retired from that organization, and then started my own PI business here in Michigan, KMI Investigations, in 2004. Okay. Excuse me. All right. Very 2005. good. 2005. Yeah, I started in 2005. 2005. Okay, we're not going to hold to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, I know uh, you have investigated some amazing cases like Jimmy Hoffa. Yep. I was lead investigator uh, on the Hoffa case for the state police, yes. And, of course, he's never been found, right? That's right. Yeah, still an open an open issue. And I also know you're the past president of the FBI National Academy Associations in, uh, Associates of Michigan. I am. In 1988, I was president. Right. Okay. And besides that, besides all of that, you're a certified fraud examiner. Yes. And you've just written a you just written a book. 
I wrote a book in 2014. It was published in 2014 called Getting the oh, Truth. Okay. okay, and we're going to talk a lot about that, Getting the Truth, uh, okay. today. But at, but at any rate, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your career as a police officer. How did you uh, get assigned to the Demi-Alpha case? Well, I was in uh, what they called Detroit Intelligence at the time, uh, the Organized Crime Unit, and uh, a fairly young detective sergeant, and the call came in, and they assigned me, and I stuck with it. Okay. And how many years were you on that case? Oh, probably three or four years. Huh, isn't that interesting? So that was quite a uh, media event. Um, probably still would be if anything new came up. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an incredible experience, especially for a young detective sergeant, which I was at the time. And uh, I remember uh, just a, a little, add a little flavor to the story. We, along with, I, along with Kurt Grenier and Wally Quarles from Bloomfield Township PD, just ended our about two-hour interview with James P. Hoffa and uh, James R. Hoffa's uh, wife, Josephine, at their Lake Orion home. And uh, we were just walking out to the car. By that time, it was nightfall, and we saw some lights in the distance and a number of people. We couldn't figure out what that was. But what that ended up being was a throng of media just uh, swarming, just waiting to hear the latest news on the Hoffa case. So it was an eye-opening experience. What year was that, Joe? 1975. 1975, yeah. Wow. That's something. And I know periodically it crops up. But uh, no legitimate leads, evidently. Well, the FBI, uh, we think we've uh, we got all the answers. Not not enough answers to prosecute anybody, but we feel we got enough answers. Uh, you know, the the feeling was that it was uh, the Provenzano family out of New Jersey with. Uh, uh, the Andretta brothers and the Briguglio brothers, who were hitmen for Provenzano, and came over to the Michigan area to take care of business. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he wasn't towing the party line, evidently. Well, the thought, the mobs thought at the time was they had uh, control over Fitzsimmons, who was the current Teamsters president, and Hoffa was apparently set to violate his promise that he wouldn't re-seek election in the Teamsters after he was paroled. Hoffa was loved by the Teamsters, and had he run again, he would have been elected, and the mob couldn't afford that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, there you go. You eliminate the, the opposition. There you go. <laughs> Okay. But, uh, but you know, Francie, as a result of that, a tremendous investment was uh, put into that case. Federal, state, local resources, 
years and years, but what the Hoffa case did was it uh, enabled investigators to really take out the Detroit mob in the future years because it allowed Mm -hmm. us to get search warrants, wiretaps, grand jury um, cases, and everyone was walking in step to go after the Detroit mob, and uh, we did. We took them down after that. So the investment was worth it, although we didn't find the killers, uh, but the mob still suffered as a result. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. Yep. So it served a purpose. It now, did. there's another case that, that you have um, gotten involved in, and I guess you, you're publishing a book on it. It's the D.B. Cooper case. Right. That's a case just, uh, I started that a couple years ago, yes. Okay, for our, for our listeners that don't have any idea who D.B. Cooper is, why don't you tell them a little bit about that? <laughs> Well, D.B. Cooper uh, is one of the most notorious, well, it's an unsolved, it's the only unsolved skyjacking case in American history. Um, And in November 24th of 1971, D.B. Cooper, uh, a fellow by the name of Dan Cooper, got a, uh, picked up a plane ticket in Portland for a flight to Seattle Northwest Orient 305, uh, and once he got on the plane, he uh, he showed the stewardess a briefcase that had what looked like a bomb in it, and he passed a note uh-huh. to the stewardess saying, uh, "I'm hijacking the plane," and he demanded twenty two hundred thousand dollars in. Uh, uh, Used $20 bills, um, four parachutes, and he jumped out the rear of the plane, never to be found again. And there's all kinds of theories about that. Well, there have been. That he... (laughs) Um, I think we've solved it. Oh, really? And And I base that on... Uh, two years of investigation. We have over three and a half hours of uh, tape recordings between who we believe was D.P. Cooper and his best friend, Carl Lauren. Carl just put out a book called D.P. Cooper and Me, uh, which is basically a, a book on uh, Carl's memoirs about his life, his life with D.P. Cooper, and uh, skydiving in general, <clears throat> and it's a very good book. And then my book will follow in a in a couple months. It'll be entitled "Getting the Truth." I am DB Cooper, and in my book, I analyze. Well, I I help gather and uh, evaluate all the evidence we've accumulated on this case, which is quite a bit, and. Uh, the uh, the transcripts are about 100 pages from these three and a half hours of interviews that Carl recorded with uh, his friend Walt Pika, who uh, we believe is D.B. Cooper. 
and I do forensic hmm. analysis, uh, forensic linguistics analysis of the of the transcripts, and compare uh, the evidence disclosed in the transcripts to the uh, known FBI 302 reports, and also our evaluate all the other evidence that we've obtained and witnesses that have come forth or we've discovered that corroborate uh, the details that Walt Pika says uh, when he describes himself as D.B. Cooper. So it's a fascinating, so how, it's a fascinating story. Absolutely. And how did you get your hands on the recording? Well, Carl Lauren out of Florida, who wrote the book uh, D.B. Cooper and Me, um, was an old friend. Uh, he's he's now, I think, in his 80s now, but at the time he was... They go back, Walter Pika and Carl go back to the early 60s when they uh, began skydiving in the Saginaw area in a skydiving club. Uh, and they would do amazing things. They would push the limits on their skydiving. They'd jump and see how close they could come to the to the earth before they pulled the cord, things like that. Oh, wow. And they'd do, uh, they'd do skydiving shows and other things, but they really honed their skydiving skills. But it's through that they developed a friendship, and uh, that friendship lasted, although there were several years where they weren't in touch with each other. Uh, but as soon as the D.B. Cooper hijacking hit hit the air, hit the TV news, uh, Carl knew that it was his buddy, Walter Pika, who had done it. And then he spent oh, the next really? few years trying to get Walter to admit it. <clears throat> and Walter finally admitted it to him and then gave him over three and a half hours of recorded interviews with all the details on the skyjacking. Details that only the skyjacker would know. And is Walter still alive? Walter died in 2014. Okay. So my book is basically uh, my book is basically an evaluation of the evidence, an analysis of the transcripts, and it's uh, basically a warrant request for the the arrest and prosecution of Walter Pika as D.B. Cooper. Of course, he's dead now, so that's moot. But I think the FBI can close their cases solved if they get their hands on my book. I can hardly wait, Joe. That sounds like a fabulous read. We're going to take a quick <laughs> break. We'll be right back, and we're going to be talking about uh, Joe's specialty, which is forensic linguistics. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. 
need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Joe Koenig, and we're going to be talking about forensic linguistics. That is especially... Joe, what is, tell us what forensic linguistics is. I've always been interested in this, um, and I want people to know what you actually do with this. Well, it's an emerging um, profession, so to speak. There's no certification for it yet, and there should be. I'm a member of the International Association of Forensic Linguists, and that's been around for a while, but it's largely been confined to the academic community. And uh, uh-huh. the, the Unabomber case is an interesting case. Kind of, uh, that's the case where, uh, I'm not sure if it was the FBI, but a forensic linguist looked at uh, the uh, documents. The, uh, uh, the Unabomber had published some, some papers. As the right, the manifesto. Right, the, the manifesto. manifesto. Right, that was the word I was looking for. And they, uh, they got a tip from uh, a family member. He said, I think that might be my brother. And he provided them with some known writing samples. And the forensic mm-hmm. linguist was able to put together a very convincing case sufficient for a search warrant for the Unabomber's uh, residents that identified <clears throat> the the manifesto with those known uh, with the writer of those known papers. I mean, there were so many uh, points of uh, common denominators that it uh, persuaded the judge to authorize a search warrant for the Unabomber's location, mm-hmm. and then the case was solved. So, I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's 
the uh, analysis of communication patterns, basically. And uh, yeah, so I look the, at... So, go, go ahead. I was going to say, so the, the theory behind it is that our personalities and the way we communicate is uh, evidence through our writings. Is yes. That, is that right? Yes. And the, the principle behind it all is that each and every word we use, whether it's spoken or written, is a decision. It's a very conscious decision, sometimes unconscious, but usually a conscious decision about what words we use as we go through our vocabulary to describe or to put together the message we're about to deliver. So it's a very... There are no accidents in the words that are spoken or written. There's a reason behind it. There's also a reason behind why uh, there are words that should have been spoken that weren't or words that should have been written that weren't, and there's a decision behind that. So this is kind of uncovering the hidden message behind what appears as the real message. So I I know there's some people that that say this is junk science. What would you say to that, Joe? Well, um, to a large extent, it's a little bit like uh, you can compare it to a polygraph because it's only as good as the operator. However, Mm -hmm. uh, there's much more to it than uh, junk science because... um, it, it has been used in court. It's been accepted in court, although I'm not sure it's ever been accepted yet in criminal court, except for search warrants and things like that. Uh, okay. But I think it's far from a junk science. I think it's as as far, if not farther, from a junk science as polygraph. I see. Okay. All right. So uh, if someone wanted to explore this area for their own education, where would they go? Well, they should start with my book, Getting the Truth. I think <laughs> okay, that's a good there you start. go. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> that's good. Um, but <laughs> they, can, they can Google it, and uh, they can take a look at the Unabomber case and see uh, you know, how it worked in action. And of course, my book has many examples of how it's uh, used in action. And, Francie, I've used mine in hundreds of cases where I've uh, confirmed my suspicions with confessions and admissions uh, and later uh, disclosures in the public about uh, what these people really mean when they're saying something. Um, and I disclose it in advance. For instance, uh, on my uh, <clears throat> Twitter page, I've put out in my web page which is at kminvestigations.com, by the way. Uh, I put out, uh, I did analysis of a, of a young man who was a much sought-after football recruit in college for a college uh, recruiting. And uh, there was an article uh-huh. put out describing his three schools that he had narrowed his choices down to, and it listed some statements under each school and I analyzed that and discovered through forensic linguistics <clears throat> that he, sele- he was about to select Notre Dame 
and that was in June, I think, of 2016 or something. And I sent a letter off to the South Bend Tribune sports writers. I think there were four of them. I said, this Robert Hainsey is going to go to your school. At least he's, uh-huh. he's uh, leaning that way today. And then in July, he committed to Notre Dame. So I've got hundreds of examples that uh, show that this isn't a junk science. Okay. All right. So, so the examples are fascinating, Joe. What? Tell us about. Tell us some more uh, of your uncovered stories. Um, tell more about some other examples. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are. Many times, you know, if you look at a transcript, for instance, I don't know how many investigators are listening, but you can do transcript analysis, and you can see where their communication pattern changes throughout the transcript. And it's where they change that you have to focus your attention. For instance, they go from a yes, yes, yes to a question, for example. What what, what was that? Uh, Or they might say, "Uh uh-huh. Or they might give something other than the yes. That's the time to look at that pattern change and try to explain why that occurred. Now, that could have occurred because of a noise in the room. Could have occurred because they had some other thoughts that were running through their mind at the time. Or it could be because of deception. So, but deception okay. is one of the reasons for those communication pattern changes. And for instance, in uh, my D.B. Cooper analysis, I go through his, um, the 100 pages of transcripts and uh, three and a half hours of interviews, and he uses a phrase called right there, which is a very idiosyncratic, um, very homey, a very um, informal phrase. And I compare when he uses that phrase, well, he used that phrase 214 times, for example, and I compare Mm -hmm. how often he used that phrase in questions that were threatening, in other words, questions about the D.B. Cooper case, and questions that were about the time of day. And uh, his, uh, his patterns didn't change. Now, that's a good... That, that consistency of informal chatter or informal patterns throughout a discussion is consistent with truth-telling. Interesting. Interesting. So, so often, um, I mean, probably there's an, a, a human being on Earth that hasn't lied at some point in time. Um, yeah, But Me often included. it's by a mission. I'm sorry, what? Me included. Oh, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, you know, we grow up learning how to do that, trying to get away with something because of our parents or, or whatever the situation is. But, um, but often the lies are by admission, correct? Correct. And that's where, that, where, where he should have said, I often say uh, the perfect communication is determining why he said what he said and why he didn't say what we would have expected him to say. So you mm-hmm. look at omissions very closely. So what is there is important. What isn't there is maybe doubly important. 
Well, so it's kind of interesting because if somebody doesn't tell the whole truth, they tell a partial truth, most people do not consider that to be a lie. Yeah, I've, I've got a good story for you, Francie. Let me, let me okay. tell it. It'll take just a couple seconds. When I was sure, a little boy absolutely. growing up in, in Michigan, I was, uh, this was in, back in 1950. I was about four years old at the time. I, had, I grew up on a, in a little house uh, on a hill and uh, had a couple neighbors next door. As you faced my house from the street on the left were the Teniers, very good neighbors, and they had just put in a, a concrete drive. And in those days, concrete drives were two ribbons of concrete. You may not remember that, but I do. Um, and they had just poured the concrete and removed the forms and uh, a day or so before, and there were jagged edges exposed on the edges of the ribbons of concrete. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was out playing one morning and uh, tripped and fell and scraped my left knee, right above my left knee. Little blood was drawn. No big deal. Not at all a big deal. I got bored and went over to my other neighbor's house, the Duttons. Mr. Dutton was a was a project guy, and he would always have do projects in his garage, which was detached and kind of down the hill. And he had told my mom on several occasions, "Keep that kid out of my garage," because I would go in there and mess around with his stuff. So I knew uh-huh. not to go in there, but this day I'm bored and I went in there, flicked the light on, and on his tool table was a was a big axe, and on his garage uh-huh. floor was a tree stump. I remember very distinctly picking up that axe, uh, and I had to, it was so heavy I had to use two hands, and of course I swung it at the tree stump, missed the tree stump, and embedded that axe just below my knee. causing a a large gaping wound, okay? So I ran home uh, all bloodied, uh, thinking, whatever I do, I can't tell Mom this happened at Dutton's garage, okay? So I get in the house, and and I'm standing bleeding on the kitchen floor. She comes running in and says, Joey, what happened? And I said, I fell on Mr. Tenier's driveway. So we learn to lie. Now, that isn't a lie. I told the truth, but it was a misleading mm-hmm. lie because I know she wasn't looking at that little mark above my knee. She was looking at the gaping wound. Uh, <laughs> but I, I got away with, it was a win-win. I got away with telling a partial lie, not telling the complete truth, and uh, I didn't suffer any further punishment. So that's how we learn to tell and in my book, I talk about that extensively. I talk about lies. Uh, there's no such thing as a complete lie. We lie in partial ways. We tell partial truths. So we can do that by telling partial truths or omitting the truth. And uh, they're, both, they're both lies. Yeah, and, most, and I would say that if you did a survey of people across the board, they would not consider that to be a lie? Maybe not, but it is deceptive and it's misleading and therefore it is is a lie. You know, it's still, 
it's it's lie by omission. It's uh, it's making someone believe they received the whole truth when they didn't. Uh huh. Now, in your case, didn't your neighbor find the axe and blood all over his garage floor? <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sure he did, but I don't remember that. I don't remember ever being punished for it. I I, oh, I got goodness. punished enough. I've got a big scar there still today. Yeah, I can imagine you do. Oh my goodness, you're you're very fortunate. It wasn't more serious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, you have an example. I love this example about the guy. Um, the guy that comes home. He's telling this story. Um, I'm looking at the information you sent me. Story about uh, reporting his car stolen. We've got well, we've only got about two minutes. So I, I hate to get started on this, but but. So one of, one of the things you point out is if somebody changes, they're telling a story, they're telling it in the first person, and then all of a sudden they change the text or the uh, uh, the, the person, the, and it become a passive yeah. voice instead of a, a, a first person voice. Very good. You described it excellently. Is, yeah, and that's, a, that, commu- that that's, a, that's a pattern change. They've changed their, okay. their, their communication pattern. They've gone from first person present tense in that example to, uh, excuse me, first person present tense active voice to a passive mm-hmm. voice. So in that case, I think it read, um, I parked the car in our driveway. The doors were locked and the alarm was activated. So we went from first person singular past tense um, active voice Active voice is described as where you know the actor. Johnny threw the ball. Uh, Johnny caught the ball. Versus the mm-hmm. passive voice, the ball was thrown. The ball was caught. So deceptive people gravitate toward the passive voice because it allows them to say something uh, without identifying or being held accountable for what they're being uh, what they're saying. So. So in this. So in this case, with the stolen car, instead of writing, I came home around 10 p.m. in the evening, I parked the car in our driveway, the doors were locked and the alarm was activated, you would expect a truthful person to say, I locked the doors and I activated the alarm. Exactly. But even more importantly, I would have expected him to own or possess his car. Instead, he says, I parked the car. I oh, would have expected okay. I parked my car or our car. I mean, he possesses uh-huh. his driveway, but he doesn't possess the car that he's no. reporting is stolen. So he's distancing himself from the car. Absolutely. And actually, okay. as, uh, once I got a confession, I learned that the guy actually took his car down. He had a friend follow him in, another, in his friend's car follow him down a lonely old road. He parked the car, uh, broke the windows out, grabbed a little uh, fragments of glass, put it in his pocket, torched the car, drove his car's and his friend uh, friend's car home with his friend in it. He did. He parked the car, but he couldn't say, I parked my friend's car in the driveway. That wouldn't make sense. So he said, mm-hmm. I parked the car. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so people... 
there's a force, and the force is truth-telling. People want to tell the truth, and we as investigators need to use that force uh, to our benefit. People want to tell the truth, so this guy actually told the truth. I parked the car. He did. He parked the car, but he parked his neighbor's car. Right. He parked a car. <laughs> yeah. 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 There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We're going we're gonna to take another break. So this is so fascinating. Uh, we'll be right back with Joe Penny. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. So we've been talking about this... um Lies by omission and how we communicate that in our writings and, and in what we say. Offline, Joe and I were just talking about um, a training called the SCAN technique that many of you investigators um, across the country and actually across the world that are listening um, have heard of the SCAN technique with Avanam uh, Sapir. Um, he provides this training called LSIS um, LSI scan, I guess it is. Um, so that's a good training along with uh, Joe's book here. So let's talk a little bit more about this, about looking for uh, words that are, are suspect. Let me put it that way. Words that are suspect in a writing. Go ahead, Joe. Well, 
I highly recommend Avenome Sipir's course. It is outstanding. It's the one that really got me started over 25 years ago. Um, I, I took everything I could from him, and uh, uh, so it was the, the the flame that started my passion for this approach. Um, yeah, each and every word is very important. For instance, when I go through or when Avanom goes through a document, uh, you circle the pronouns. That's one of the first things you do. And then you uh, underline important words. Uh, because, uh, and Avanom will tell you that over 80% of deceptive uh, phrases can be found in, uh, by using pronoun analysis where they change, yeah. for instance, in that, that uh, insurance example. He didn't say my car or our car, which I would have expected. He said the car. So that's a situation where it's not a pronoun. It's a missing pronoun. So, again, right. we go back to not only what's there, but is what isn't there that maybe should be. Um, so... Uh, to begin with, you have to be a trained observer. I mean, you've got to be using all your senses and, uh, I say, empathy in order to really get the true message. But it's all about um, taking a look at each and every word that is used and determining whether or not uh, there's logic or there's an explanation behind why that word was used. Um, and if there isn't, if there's a change, for instance, a guy says in a statement, um, I saw the guy come from the basement with a gun. He went outside and shot the gun. Now, that's consistent. It starts out with a gun, and then he uh -huh. goes outside and shoots the gun. So we can assume, although we should never assume, that the gun is the same gun he came out of the basement with. Now let's switch that and say the guy came out of the basement with the gun and then he went outside and shot a gun. Now that's an entirely different situation and we've got to be able to pick up on that and drill down and figure out, find out why that change occurred. Something caused uh -huh. that change to occur. Maybe it was a different gun. Maybe the guy just uh, said it. I don't know. It could have been an accidental thing. But there are no, in my work, there are no accidents. Every word is a decision. Well, you know, um, you give an example of uh, a second quarter report for, I guess it's uh, Oracle. Oh, yeah, yeah. And... And it really sparked uh, sparked my attention because I think a lot of times when we read information about companies, um, PR releases or prospectuses and things like that, um, there are words that are couched like this one that we're going to talk about right now that leads you to believe something that maybe is smoke and mirrors. Uh -huh. So in in this case, you highlight guidance. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, oh, you want, uh, you so want me to? Yeah, in this yeah, case, uh, like right. in, when we get these 
quarterly financial conferences, earnings conferences from public companies. Uh, they usually have a prepared speech that the executive, the chief executive or chairman, gives to the stockholders and the analysts to begin with, which is a written statement. It's prepared, but it's nevertheless a reflection of the chairman's thinking. And, so, and oftentimes they will disclose in their, when they're reading it, uh, a preference or something that can be very illuminating. But I tend to concentrate on the question and answer session where the analysts are asking the, the executive questions. And I get their contemporaneous and spontaneous responses. And oftentimes you'll see the we think, we feel, we believe kind of approach, uh, which is corporate language, uh, where they... Um, <clears throat> They often they can use that to uh, spread the uh, the praise and spread the blame. So we is a very important pronoun. But when you get in, as in Oracle's case, where the executive is talking, we 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 we, and then later on it gets to she switches from we to I. That was mm-hmm. an important communication pattern break, and it's that uh, change that I focused on and uh, made the prediction that she is so confident in what she just said that she was able to use the I, which is you're very accountable. There's only one I, and you're very accountable and responsible, uh, responsible for what you say at that point. It's, it's a lot different than a we, because later on you can say, well, that's really not my thinking. That was the consensus. But when you say I... You're accountable and responsible. And it's those little breaks that I look at, and it's almost like getting inside information on a company. Yeah, I see that in the writing. So she, in the initial part, she says, let me get to the guidance, and we do believe that the guidance I'm giving is realistic. And then for, and as, the, the, as it goes forward, then she says, now my guidance. There you go. Big change, yeah. isn't it? So that's, yeah, uh, interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, um, yep. You can make some money with this, but you got to get good at it, <laughs> and it takes uh, it takes a lot of study. Now, uh, Joe, does the FBI use this scan technique or this uh, uh, linguistic technique when they're looking at? Oh, I'm sure. I, I'm, and, I'm sure they do, Francie. I'm sure they do. If they don't, I'm sure even the CIA uses it. Um, in their analysis not, of, I mean, I use yeah. it, uh, you know, off TV when I'm listening to these politicians and foreign dignitaries talk, and I can pick them apart just uh, very clearly. So I'm absolutely certain they use it. If they don't, they're uh, they're uh, they're not doing their job. They just probably don't talk about it officially. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Um, so. Do you work on criminal cases at all? I do. Yep. And do you um, I, I typically cases? I don't I don't like testifying against other officers, so I shy mm-hmm. away from that a little bit. But there are occasions where I work innocence cases uh, with uh, <clears throat> with a friend of mine, John Smateka, here in the Grand Rapids area, and we uh, 
we have seven or eight cases where we're very interested in in helping a, a person out of jail that we think were wrongfully convicted. That's great. And and are you able to use this process, this linguistic process, when you're working on those cases? Yes, yes. Matter of fact, on one of them, I had to go back to the family and told them as a ba- as a result of my analysis that, uh, <clears throat> and along with all the other evidence that we uncovered, that uh, there's no point in pursuing this. He's the killer. So really? it can work wow. both ways. Wow, that's interesting. So you actually did go back and tell them that yep. uh, they their family member was a killer. Wow, that's amazing. Yep. All right, so um, so to tell people who are interested in this, because this is fascinating, Joe. This is fascinating. And uh, so they, you would suggest getting your book, which obviously you have a book called, that we've been talking about, called Getting the Truth. Right, um, right. They can, can get, get that, book? by the way. They can get a, I can autograph a copy for them off my website. I've got an author tab on there, so they can get it through that. Or they can get it through PI Magazine if they'd like. Okay. All right. But they won't get an autographed copy good, that way. Good plug for my sponsor, PI Magazine, for sure. Okay, yep. so Getting the Truth by Joe Koenig. And then the book that's coming out, I am the, uh, Getting the Truth, I am Dee Cooper. You were telling me offline that there's a film documentary. You want to talk about that? It's going to be uh, launched in July. Yeah, let me get the dates for that, Francie. I think it's okay. July 14th through, um, uh, actually, it's, uh, go to the website, uh, therealdbcooper.com, all one word, therealdbcooper.com. Okay. And on there, and I think it's July 14th through 16th of uh, 2018, okay. they're going to have the premiere for the, for the D.B. Cooper film documentary that, that my uh, publisher has developed <clears throat> um, uh, at, in Cleelum, Washington, which is the landing site uh, for uh, where D.B. Cooper landed. And uh, okay. it's a fascinating story. It's a wonderful film documentary. It's going to be given to the, uh, the, the people in Cleelum, Washington, as a fundraiser for all the fire departments in that area. So all the monies, all the proceeds are going to go to the, to the volunteer firemen in that Cleelum, Washington area, and they, they think they're going to have a heck of a turnout. Sounds great. Well, we're at the end of our hour, Joe. It's been just delightful talking to you. Um, I'm excited about the book that's coming out as well as the one you've already written. And, uh, For the rest of you, stay tuned next week for P.I. Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Joe. It's been a very, very nice show. Thank you, Francie. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 